For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the Colorado River is shrinking, and agriculture is responsible for using the largest share of that water. Find out how farmers and researchers are working together to plan for a future with less to go around. In her own words, Adia Barnes shares her experience as a mother and a head coach. Chris DeShiel remembers Hollywood legend Peter Bogdanovich. And a short story by Michelle Ross about a married couple's differences and the difference between cake or pie. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Agriculture is responsible for about 80% of the water used from the Colorado River. As the river supply shrinks, some farms are facing sharp cutbacks. Many are wondering if new technology can help them get by with less water. KUNC reporter Alex Hager visited growers in one of the driest parts of the Southwest to tell this story. It's a warm winter day in Yuma, Arizona, and the desert sun is beating down on a sea of low green fields. Matt McGuire looks out on neat rows of cauliflower and lettuce. Those are the main crops, but we have other crops. We're actually growing carrots, radishes, celery. McGuire is the chief agricultural uh, officer for J.V. Smith Companies, which grows all this produce. Spring mix, spinach, you name it. You find it on the grocery shelf and it's a leafy green. It probably came from here. He says 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from this area, and the rows of veggies are striking in their perfection. The field is a corduroy of precision-cut stripes, and the dirt that holds the roots is chiseled into angles you could measure with a protractor. These laser-leveled fields are just one innovation that's come along all in the name of efficiency. This system is showing us so far when we're doing it, that uses half as much water as what we're using for sprinklers. And so it's just a uh, constant progression to try to use less water. They're trying to use less partly because someday they might be given less. Farms in other parts of Arizona are already seeing cutbacks to their allocation from the Colorado River due to drought that's straining the entire region. And at this rate, the cuts will hit more farms in the years ahead. Hope and pray for more rain, more snow, but we're trying to prepare for less water. Farms everywhere have long been adopting new technologies to help the bottom line, which right now includes using less water. Paul Brierley works on desert agriculture at the University of Arizona. I have farmers today that say, well, we're doing everything as good as can possibly be done. And and I always say, let's look in 50 years and look back and we'll laugh at these pictures just as much as, as We laugh at the pictures from 50 years ago. He says that innovation includes complex weather data, mobile apps, drones, and satellites, all to help measure and distribute water. This was something that um, a lot of money's gone into from a lot of sources uh, proactively, really. It's not because government said you, you have less water this year. It's because the industry wanted to know how can we best 
figure out what's the right amount of water. New tech on farms throughout the Southwest can lead to less water applied to crops. But that doesn't always mean the water is being sick. Farmers are more interested in income from water. That's Frank Ward. He studies water policy and the economics of agriculture at New Mexico State University. They're more interested in what part of their water applied gets to the root zone. Uh, so, you know, conservation is less of an issue for the typical farmer than you might think. One common technique that appears to bring water use down is drip irrigation. Drip irrigation actually for the plant, you typically uses more water, depending on how you apply it. Uh, so your recharge to the aquifer goes way, way down. Ward co-authored a paper explaining how some of the most popular farm technologies don't actually decrease water use on a basin-wide scale, but they're still being adopted because... At an individual farm scale, it may look like it's conserving water because you're applying, you're applying a lot less, but the, uh, the research seems to be showing that shifts into drip irrigation are not conserving water, but they are raising farm income. So when it comes to the future of farming in an area with less water to go around, Ward says rising prices will mean more dedicated efforts to use less, eventually grow less, and... Any of those areas where you have heavy urban pressure on water use and where you have water trading, you would probably expect farmers to gradually rent or transfer their water from farms into cities. And those realities may be on the way for parts of the Colorado River Basin. Climate scientists are projecting a warm and dry future where dropping reservoir levels mean more mandatory cutbacks. I'm Alex Hager in Yuma, Arizona. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The endless demand on women to demonstrate they have a balance between their careers and other people's expectations about motherhood is never-ending. Adia Barnes, the head coach for the University of Arizona women's basketball program, has faced this situation head-on at virtually every press conference she has held. Next, in a story produced by Nina Shelton, Adia Barnes shares her experience and how an off-camera moment during the 2021 NCAA championship became a viral sensation to normalize motherhood. Adia Barnes and the Wildcats will play for the national championship! teach my players to be the best version of themselves so I have to model that and um, you're not trying to sell something you're just being authentic and true to yourself so I think on the outside everything always looks perfect and it's never it never is you never know what someone's going through and I think for women I think it's hard sometimes because we wear so many hats but we're women's basketball and the years of women coaching is the years they're childbearing we can kick ass at both. It's one of the hardest jobs you'll ever have. And uh, I mean, I, to me, that's doing more than what a typical dad does. 
I do see the double standards, but um, you know, I'm a mom, I'm proud of it. I'm glad to talk about it. I announced my pregnancy like on a Monday. I think on a, my radio show. I had just announced it because I just passed the first trimester. So I announced it on a Monday and then I have like the miscarriage on like a Thursday. So I was carrying a baby for seven days that had passed away. So that was kind of like, oh man, you know, that was a hard moment. Going for surgery on a Thursday, Friday night I have to coach. And so I remember sitting at the game a couple minutes, I'm like, you know, wanting to break down, like, why am I here? Like, I'm just had a miscarriage, like, I shouldn't be here. But then like my team played their hearts out. Um, they were just like, they knew something was wrong. They didn't know at the time what I went through, but I think they knew something. And so they just played hard. We weren't gonna lose, we were bad that year. We weren't gonna lose that game. And then on the Saturday was my birthday and I had 150 people at my house for an alumni event. So like, I didn't really have time to even grieve. And then like, I just smiled, whatever. And then Sunday coached again and just kind of didn't ever really take time off. So there's like 150 women. I talked about the story, but in an intimate setting to all those women. And then there was women like crying because so many women in the room have gone through that. And I didn't really understand how many people have gone through that. I was just sharing my story as a working mom. And then there was a writer in the crowd there. So then it became public for that. But I, I didn't care. Um, I was kind of like, it is what it is. Like, that's what happened women across the country and like across campus, they'd come up to me crying like, I went through the same thing. Like so many women had like, and no one talks about it because it's a hard thing to talk about, but it's like so common. And I'm like, this is real. And like you, probably in that room, if when we sit in this room as players, I bet you half of them will go through it. And so I think that's another thing I do for the players. They see behind the scenes stuff. And then they see me put on the face out in the public. And I think that's something they can learn to be resilient. Because it is hard um, balancing all those things. But if it's, not, if it's easy, it's not worth it. I, had, I was scared to death. I was like every day like, OK, am I still pregnant or not? Like it was scary. I was 43 turning 44. There was a 5% chance to get pregnant. Like I, I was like, and I was like killing it. I was getting in shape. I was like, I'm getting my body back. I'm gonna start looking good. I lost 25 pounds. Like I was, I threw away all my, my chubby girl clothes. And then um, was like sweating in the game. I was like, why am I sweating? And then found out I was pregnant, took like four tests. So I was like, oh gosh, like I am deathly ill. Like I, this probably is not gonna happen. So could not tell anybody, it was like sick, but the girls knew something. I was eating like sauerkraut. And then like, uh, honestly, COVID hit and I was able to hide. So it was the best thing for me because I was just starting the show. Cause at this time I was like three months. And I honestly didn't tell people to like five and a half months. I told people on my, on my friend's radio show, I don't think I would have sustained the pregnancy cause I would have been traveling all over the world. And I would have been every day on a plane, not resting. I, I don't think at 44, with a, such a, it was only a 29% chance I would carry to term. And so she was like my miracle baby. So I got it. So like when I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, like I look at the final four games, I'm like, Adia, you need to get in shape. Like you need to be a role model. And I look at my baby, I'm like, I would have gained 500 more pounds. Like I don't give a damn. Like it'll get there and I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm 44 with a newborn. Like I'm, I'm doing my best.
So after my daughter was born, uh, like the day that she was born, in the hospital I got preeclampsia. So it's very common older, and it's very common African-American women. And, but I remember I was in the hospital, and I just thought like, because I'm 44, I just had a C-section, I just thought I'm struggling right now, I have a headache, everything's blurry just because I'm older. And then they did some testing, I had like such high blood pressure, I could have like had a stroke. And so they didn't let me out of the hospital. So in the hospital, monitoring it, um, they let me go a couple days later, but then I had to stay kind of on bed rest. Obviously, I did not. Um, had to like had to measure my um, blood pressure like every I don't know three hours, extremely high. So that's why when I started getting on the zooms all the time, it was like stressful stuff. They were like, you can't do that. And so I did some, but I didn't do them like I didn't do them every day. So I kind of had to take a step back. I obviously wasn't gonna talk about it. So I took like three and a half weeks. After a month, I went back, so I already missed like a week or two of practice. But I just sat more practice, so they didn't know. And it went away after like four or five months. But it was a, it was a long time and it was hard. Like I still check it sometimes, but no one ever really knew, except for my husband. So I'm trying to um, do a better job of balancing that and take care of myself, but the reality is right now, I'm not capable of doing that. Self-care for yourself as a mom has always come last. And that's just real. And I think that women aren't real when it comes to this stuff. It is what it is. And it's a short period, it'll pass. Normally I would pump right before the game, so then during the games I'm not in pain. Like those of you that have um, pumped before or breastfed, you know like after a couple hours your boobs are like up to here and you feel like you're like gonna explode. So there was media obligations before the game, so I didn't really have time to pump. So I went through the game, I was like, oh I'll be okay, because I was like, I'm so stressed out, I'm probably not gonna even have a lot of milk, because I'm so, it was a stressful moment, you know, the biggest game of my life. And so during the game, I remember feeling like, ooh, <laughs> I don't want to like have my shirt wet with milk with in front of five million people or more. So I was like, I need to pump for five minutes at halftime just to kind of relieve the pressure and just real quick. So I go in there and pump while I'm talking to my staff. They were used to it by then. They, I mean, boobs everywhere all the time. And so I walk out and I was like kind of late. So Holly asked me a couple questions and she didn't know. Obviously I didn't tell her. And then someone was like, yeah, she came out really late. So I think someone behind me in our organization said, yeah, she had to pump. And then I go out there and then later on I found out she said it and she, I wasn't mad. She said, I didn't really care. Like I wasn't embarrassed about it. I was just like, I had to do it. I have to do it. Sorry. But it's not something I would ever, I wouldn't have told anybody. But that was my reality. So um, it like went viral. I didn't even think it was that big of a deal. So I just was like, yeah, like everybody has pumped and like, I didn't even like, it didn't ever register. I was more worried about the milk on national TV. I wasn't worried about the pumping part. I was more worried like, I do not want wet stains here. I would like die. I think that it just, it made it real. So many women talked about it. I'm like, wow. So, so many women have gone through that or they haven't had a place to do it or they've been in a crunch and needed to do it for a meeting. So I, it was so relatable. And I, so I think that was good that we just brought attention to it. It makes me feel good that like, I think that I attracted some audiences that probably wouldn't have watched. I think that was cool. And I think it was cool that like, I brought recognition to stuff that I didn't even know like it needed that much recognition. So I, and it's cool that uh, people chose me to be a voice or um, if I can help like the next woman or help someone accept like their assistant, let her breastfeed or let her go and pump for 20 minutes. I, I think that if I'm supporting women and helping change then I'm, I'm happy. Like it's a blessing.
That story about Adia Barnes was produced by Nina Shelton for Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. You can find the complete video at azpm.org. A true Hollywood legend, director Peter Bogdanovich, died last week at age 82. He leaves behind a fascinating body of work, including both masterpieces and disasters. Film essayist Chris DeShiel explains. When I heard on January 6th that Peter Bogdanovich had died, I felt sad at losing this important figure in American cinema. But I also felt an emotion that I think is unwarranted, a recurring sense of disappointment at unfulfilled potential. I had to remind myself that Bogdanovich was 82 years old and had a fine career. This narrative about failed promise was something I unconsciously picked up from the type of film criticism that had always unfairly surrounded him. It stems from his original reputation as a youthful prodigy. His outstanding first credited feature, made when he was 28, was Targets, a brilliant and prescient story of a mass shooter, made at Roger Corman's studio and told against the background of classic movie professionalism, exemplified by Boris Karloff, whom Bogdanovich was lucky enough to get to play the film's hero. Following this, his second fiction film, which got distribution from Columbia in 1971, was The Last Picture Show, a poetic and melancholy portrait in black and white of a North Texas town in the early 50s, adapted from a Larry McMurtry novel. The movie was so beautifully written, directed, and acted that it became an immediate critical and commercial success, and it remains Bogdanovich's one bona fide masterpiece, essential viewing for anyone who loves American cinema. But there was a problem with producing a masterpiece so early in his career. The Hollywood establishment and the critics would measure everything he did later by the standard of this one great film. In fact, Bogdanovich made a lot of brilliant films, and some of them that did very well at the box office, but for those who were obsessed with The Last Picture Show, it was never enough. In the early 1970s, he directed What's Up, Doc?, a tribute to screwball comedy with Barbara Streisand, and then Paper Moon, a comedy drama starring Ryan O'Neill and his daughter Tatum as a traveling Depression-era con man and his child protege. Both films were popular and critical successes, with Paper Moon gaining a reputation over the years as a moving and intelligent work, one of his best. Then came three flops in a row, and that resulted in the industry labeling Bogdanovich as a loser, something that unfairly dogged him for basically the rest of his life. Following these, St. Jack from 1979, starring Ben Gazzara as a wheeler dealer in the sleazy Singapore nightlife, did not get the attention it deserved. This is an excellent and subtly conveyed crime picture that you should check out first chance you get. They All Laughed, from 1981, featured Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn and a host of others in a light-hearted comedy that is well worth seeing, but once again was not well promoted. Among his later films, Mask, starring Cher as the mother of a facially disfigured child, was a big hit. All of his films, regardless of how they did, are well-made and worth seeing. But there's another aspect of this man's life that I must mention. He'd started as a critic, and his enterprising spirit and personable nature led to his becoming friends with a lot of the important figures of classic studio-era Hollywood. He spent a lot of time, for instance, with John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Cary Grant, Lauren Bacall, Howard Hawks, and James Stewart, among others. But his most intense friendship was with Orson Welles, who became a mentor to the younger director. Like many people who got close to Welles, Bogdanovich experienced some hurt and rejection as well. 
But from all these people and many more, Bogdanovich received lengthy interviews that were published in books called Who the Devil Made It and Who the Hell Was In It that contained priceless information about old Hollywood and its films and filmmakers that would have been forever lost without him. These are just two of his many books, articles, and commentaries that are invaluable for letting us see the classic studio era up close. Bogdanovich performed an incalculable service for everyone who loves American movies. Late in life, when he could have been working on his own films, he performed the monumental task of putting together Orson Welles' unfinished movie from the early 70s, The Other Side of the Wind, finally releasing the film in 2018 to immense critical acclaim. This act of service, dedicated to Orson Welles, Bogdanovich faithfully completed, despite the fact that they had had a falling out at the time of Welles' death in 1985. I can't stop thinking about the selflessness and tender regard for the legacy of his mentor and friend that this demonstrated. My initial reaction, based on the old unfair story of failed potential, I can gladly say I have overcome. Peter Bogdanovich was a complicated man, a great artist, and is pure an example of love for motion pictures that we may ever see. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Shield. Tucson-based author Michelle Ross has a flair for creating the unexpected. It's demonstrated in her new short story collection called Shapeshifting. I recently talked with her about her ability to shape characters with an economy of words, like a literary miniaturist. That interview will air on this show next week. But for now, here is Michelle Ross reading one of her very short stories called Cake or Pie. I'm Michelle Ross, and this is Cake or Pie. Rhoda's husband, Don, says maybe he should put out an ad seeking a partner better suited to life in the end of days. This is after he comes home with a trunk full of dry beans and rice, and after Rhoda says she would wither and die on a diet of dry beans and rice. What about butter and flour and sugar and eggs? If I'm going to hunker down and hide, I need pastries. I need coffee and wine. Otherwise, what's the incentive to staying alive? And after, Don says, the incentive is survival. Also, what if the power goes out? The butter will become rancid. The oven will be useless. And after Rhoda says, but what if the power doesn't go out and we suffer needlessly? And after Don gives her an exasperated look and says, there's no baking in doomsday prepping. Rhoda's problem, according to Don, is she's governed by appetite, and appetite is fickle. She's unpredictable even to herself. They'll go out to their favorite Italian restaurant because Rhoda wants ravioli. But once there, she'll deliberate for 15 minutes over the veal marsala, the chicken salting bocca, and whatever special the waiter describes with what Don considers to be overly precious words. As Don stacks the dry beans and rice next to his other stores, hefty bags of oats, a vat of peanut butter, stacked boxes of saltine crackers. He says to Rhoda, you want too much. Rhoda considers all that Don wants. She envisions Don scrutinizing prospective end-of-days partners' resumes for inconsistencies, 
says here, you're detail-oriented, yet the next line is missing a period and responsible spelled with an A. She pictures him sitting across from these women, engaging how matter-of-factly they look him in the eye when answering his questions, whether they fidget their hands, tug at the waist of their jeans, to tuck in bits of belly that would otherwise poof out like pillows from clumsily made beds. He will be looking for someone without impulses to restrain or hide, but also someone who would be good at hiding when the world comes to that, as Dawn believes it will. Someone who can keep still and keep her mouth shut whole days. Someone whose desires are discreet. Someone easily satisfied. Or maybe someone for whom satisfaction is not necessary for whom survival is enough. Broda imagines his first interview question will be cake or pie. If the candidate says cake or pie, she's out, because the right answer is neither. The right answer is that sugar has no nutritional value. The right answer is sweetness is non-essential. But Rhoda thinks, the look on Don's face as he talks about what he still needs to purchase for their pantry and what he needs in a partner in these times resembles that of a child anticipating the tinkling music of an ice cream truck. One who doesn't speak the language of doomsday prep might think frugality and practicality and going without mean compote and cream and toasted meringue. Michelle Ross's latest collection of short fiction is called Shapeshifting, published by Stillhouse Press. Tune in next week to hear an interview and another story. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.